Welcome to the Trial Better Podcast. Inspired by a recent FDA guidance, we dive into blood pressure monitoring and clinical trials and the technologies we can leverage for better data. We also explore ways to improve patient compliance with ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Leading this week's discussion is host Patricia Castellano and featured guest Emily Olson. Stay tuned to Trial Better. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this installment of Trial Better Podcast. My name is Trisha Castellano, and I'm a lead with the product management team at ERT's Cardiac Safety Division. I'll be your podcast host this week, and today we welcome our featured guest, Emily Olson, from the University of North Carolina. Hi, Emily, and thanks so much for joining us today. Emily, Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sure. Emily, we met a couple of years ago, and you were part of an expert team of hypertensive researchers. They were doctors and study coordinators, and they were sponsoring a unique ambulatory blood pressure training program. Now, at the time, you were the clinical research coordinator for the hypertensive research program at UNC at Chapel Hill, and you told me you participated in many clinical trials where you were responsible for collecting over 1,000 ABPM recordings. Your training program was great, and it focused on the why and how of using ABPM to monitor blood pressure. Why did you feel it was so important to put together a team of experts to provide hands-on training on best practices with ABPM monitoring? Yeah, so we were very fortunate. Um, I have 11 years' experience as a clinical research coordinator and as a project manager, um, and as you said, worked primarily in hypertension research. So we did do um, studies that utilized ambulatory blood pressure monitoring as, as well as other blood pressure measurements. The importance of doing it correctly and of really engaging the participant or the patient in the process is incredibly important. If you're going to be doing this, you really want to make sure that you're getting good data um, and that the patients or the participants are compliant with the measurements and with the monitoring. And really the best way to do that is to understand the tool that you're using, to understand how it works and what the experience is going to be like for the person wearing it. Um, I think, you know, as a coordinator, really spending the time training other teams on how to appropriately communicate with the patient, to communicate with your participants, makes all the difference in the quality of data that you get for blood pressure measurement. Yeah, so your, your program specifically pointed out about that there was a relationship between quality and the value of blood pressure. So explain to mm-hmm. me a little bit about that connection. Yeah, so the largest study that we did was on 420 participants who uh, had borderline blood pressure. So these are participants who were not particularly invested in their blood pressure, right? Not people that were already on medications and that kind of thing. And each of those participants did two ABPM sessions. So we had um, 840 ABPM sessions. And we were able to achieve with that a 98% compliance rate in the data quality that we got. So we were able to actually use 98% of those uh, measurements that that came back to us in our analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the importance of that truly is to be able to you know, if you're going to use this data either to draw conclusions for a research study um, or if you're going to be using it clinically to make decisions about their care and about their quality of life, you mm. want to be basing that on data that's real, right? Um, and on data that is, is of the highest quality and is most representative of their life. And so we feel the ABPM really captured that the best. You know, when you're just doing office measurements, you get a quick snapshot into their blood pressure, into what their blood pressure is doing at that one moment in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, with home blood pressure monitoring, likewise, you're getting a snapshot into their home life. 
Um, but with both of those methods, you have a little bit less control over the quality um, and the scope, too. So with the ABPM data, you're really getting a full comprehensive picture of 24 hours of their life, the blood pressure patterns, the individual blood pressure measurements, how they're reacting to their surroundings um, and to any other input. So any medications or anything like that that they take while they're using the ABPM. Now, at the recent meeting with the FDA, because the FDA has been talking a lot about more and more concern about a relationship between blood pressure while a patient's on drug and, you know, unwanted increases, small increases, particularly for patients that are taking drugs chronically. Uh, And they, they specifically in their last session this year talked about that compliance. They even said, hey, we think you might only want to collect two ABPMs because we know compliance is an issue. So clearly they've heard about that. But you said you got in your study 98% compliance. Did you always mm-hmm. have that kind of compliance in your trials? Yeah, across all of our studies, we, we did very well. We always had over 90%. Um, that one that I mentioned was by far our largest study um, with the most ABPMs, you know, in a single population. Um, mm-hmm. But we always had really excellent compliance. And I definitely credit that to um, our preparation. We had a instruction sheet that we spent between five and 15 minutes with every single participant at every single ABPM session um, going over the sort of purpose. Why are we doing this? Um, why should you care? Why is it in your best interest to get good data and to sort of work with us? Uh, mm-hmm. We would always troubleshoot. We would do some um, examples while we were in the office, right? So uh, we would explain to them how we were putting the ABPM on. We would show them how it should be positioned and explain why it need, it was important that it be positioned that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we would give them some troubleshooting tips and be very honest and transparent about the fact that it wasn't going to be the most comfortable 24 hours of their lives, right? Um, that this thing is a little bit annoying and it is a little bit intrusive, uh, but that the data quality that we get is so important and that if they're able to to help us achieve good data in this 24 hours, it's really going to be to everybody's benefit. And we found that um, being available also when they had questions during that 24 hours, Mm -hmm. that we were not available 24-7, but we did try to have a phone number available for them uh, into the evening as well. And Mm -hmm. they could call and say like, hey, is this what it's supposed to be doing? Is it supposed to be taking this many measurements? Is it supposed to feel like this? Or I'm uncomfortable, I want to take it off. You know, is there anything I can do to make it more comfortable? Um, And we found that if we were able to sort of talk them through it and really empower them in their experience of the monitoring session, that that they did great uh, on the whole. So it sounds like a key is to setting expectations with the subject, to not pretend this isn't an important thing or that this isn't going to be maybe difficult or, or, you know, inconvenient to to handle, but you're confident that they can do it and you walk through Mm -hmm. the stitches with them. Now, I know there's yeah. about the collection. There's rules about, you know, hey, don't take it off. You shouldn't shower. Do, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. But it sounds like you actually help them understand that they might not be compliant and then help them figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, certainly when we schedule the session, we, we make clear to them um, what the the constrictions of the study are, right, and what the parameters about showering and, and such um, and so we try to encourage them to schedule it on a day when they don't have an activity scheduled that would conflict with that. Um, you know, I remember particularly we had one participant who had a religious water aerobics class that she went to. And so she would not miss it. 
Um, and so we made sure to schedule it on a day when she was not going to be in her water aerobics class and wouldn't be having the cause to take the ABPM off. Mm-hmm. Um, however, certainly we understood and we learned during the course of this that uh, people do take it off, right? You can you can tell them and you can explain to them why it's important, but either they're they're going to shower just no matter what you tell them, um, or they get very uncomfortable and annoyed with it, and so they're going to take it off. Um, you know, I know on a few occasions early on in the study, as we were sort of learning about this, mm-hmm. uh, we had a couple people come back in with the cuff upside down, and they swore up and down that they had not taken it off, but very clearly they had and had put it back on incorrectly. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that, that you just need to deal with as a clinician and as a coordinator and to understand that these are people's lives and they're going to live them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in order to get good data, you have to get them on board with you, right? And so we were explaining as we put the monitor on in the office, you know, mm-hmm. here's where it goes. It goes in this position. Um, this part needs to be over this part of your arm. Um, and trying to help them troubleshoot a little bit so that inevitably when something happened, when something came up, they were able to then get it back on um, and to resume the study uh, in a way that still got us quality data uh, because we had sort of trained them. Certainly, we were always emphasizing you should follow these guidelines and you should not take it off. But um, in the event that it does need to be taken off, this is how you put it back on. And sometimes we weren't even that explicit, right? We would just sort of explain it as we were going along um, and not necessarily saying, you know, you, you might take this off, um, but here's how to put it back on. But just knowing that that interaction and that education, they would know how to put it back on and they would know how to make adjustments um, in the event that they weren't able to follow the guidelines to the T. Now, Emily, your team has a lot of, you know, you, you're a hypertensive expert. You have a lot of experience in, with this and you know what the disease is like and you, you know how to run those clinical trials. A lot of sites, though, in clinical trials don't focus on hypertension and they don't have exposure right. to ABPM, right? ABPM, ABPM is kind of a unique tool to collect blood pressure. So for those sites that haven't, have never experienced blood pressure, they haven't had one required to, to collect before, um, what would you kind of advise them in terms of ways to, to really get comfortable with what it's about and how to how to how to work with their patients like you have? Right. Uh, and this is part of the reason we developed that course to begin with. Right. To try to communicate with clinicians, with teams, with study teams mm-hmm. about um, what the equipment is and to have some familiarity with best practices and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly not everyone is able to to attend those sessions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would definitely recommend, I think for me, the first thing is that you should wear the ABPM yourself. I think that is key, both in you understanding the experience of the participant or your patient, um, mm-hmm. and also in their trust of you saying, hey, this is important, and I understand what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a number of participants look at me and be like, oh, but come on, you haven't actually worn this thing for 24 hours, right? And I could always honestly say like, yes, I have, and I wanted to throw it across the room halfway through the session. I get it. Um, but, you know, these are the things that you can do. And here's here's why the data is important in the end and what it's going to help us learn about you and how it's going to help us improve your care. We found that a lot of people um, are actually motivated to do the ABPM to sort of prove their doctors wrong in some situations. Um, it may be that they don't want to go on medicine and they don't trust the blood pressure machine from the office, right? They say, well, that's just one measurement. You know, how do you know? You can't you can't base it on that. Um, 
And so a lot of times they'll do these these measurements in order to try to to get more data. And so you can sort of get them invested that way. Of course, always managing expectations that this is the gold standard and that this is going to give us the best possible data. But I definitely think that, you know, for new teams coming in, um, having some standardized sort of forms. So we always had an instruction form that we went over step by step with the participants. Uh, we always played with our equipment. We tried to break it, right? We tried to do things that um, would give us poor data so that we would know what to expect. And when we saw poor data from our participants, we would be able to try to figure out with them what was going on um, and how we could fix them. Special thanks to both Tricia and Emily for your discussion on ABPM best practices and technologies. This information is only becoming more and more relevant as regulatory bodies focus on the effect drug therapies can have on blood pressure. To our listeners, thanks again for joining us. If you heard something you like, please shoot us a message at trialbetter at ert.com or leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. See you next time on the Trial Better Podcast.